Hey, Dave. <laughs> I saw you guys when you came in. <laughs> um, we, Karen said we had some new people. I see you guys out there. We're going to have you stand up and sing a special. No, I'm just kidding. We don't do that to you. <laughs> um, if you're new here, I'm Dave. I'm the pastor. We've been, Karen and I have been here for about 12 years. Um, Alan Mitchell, Karen mentioned Alan. We're celebrating their one-week anniversary today. <laughs> Alan's been here for 20-something years, something like that. 22 years, and so Alan's been part of our leadership for a long, long time, but when we came and we joined in with DCF 12, 12 years ago, this was already a church, loved people, man, uh, had been impacting the ministry in this area, had started several ministries in this area, so a long, huge legacy of DCF, and so we, as we kind of dream into the future, part of what we, we feel God's called us to do is to just bring this message of the gospel of grace and the power and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, especially a mature response of the Holy Spirit into this region and release, really release what God has always meant for us to have um, in this church and in our city as believers. And part of that is just really building into and releasing the inheritance of God. And so I've been, that's something that's kind of been passionate for me for most of my ministry, that I love to see people walk into the inheritance that God has for them. So I'm starting a new series today called It Is Finished. And so obviously that's one of the things that Jesus said on the cross, and we're going to get to that in just a minute. But today I want to start with It Is Finished and just ask the question, why the cross? You hear about the cross all the time. We wear them on our neck. I mean, there's lots of things about the cross, um, and it's common language in the church, but so often we've been duped by the world, duped by religion, into really hearing about the cross, talking about the cross, but not really understanding the power of the cross and what happened at the cross on our behalf. And so I want to talk about that, but let me start with a couple of questions. Have you ever struggled to feel accepted? (laughs) If you're in high school, that's like every day. You have no idea, right? Um, We've all struggled with that. What about have you ever struggled to feel connected? Do you feel like, like, especially with the last couple of years with covid this disconnection from, even though we're doing stuff online, social media makes you feel connected because you have 3,000 friends, but do you really have 3,000 friends, right? So have you ever struggled for that? Have you ever felt like you've been duped, like somehow you're missing something, like the promises of God are there and you've heard them, maybe you've grown up in church and you've heard these promises, but some, for some reason it's like, I am not seeing, I think, what maybe God had in mind for me. I know that was one of my experiences when I came into the church I gave my life to Jesus, and I did that through grace. It's the only way that you can come to know God is through grace, and we're going to get into that. But one of the things that happened very quickly was it was Jesus plus something. I got saved through Christ. I, was, I, I knew it was the Lord. I knew what he was doing. Uh, I gave my life completely to him, and then it felt like then, after that, there was always you got to read your Bible more. you got to come to church more. you got to serve more. you got to give more. There's always Jesus plus something. And so if you don't know this already, part of our passion at DCF is Jesus plus nothing, right? (laughs) It's Jesus. It's all Jesus all the time. You don't have to worry about anything being added to it because we're not going to do that. You might try to do that, but we're going to convince you if we can not to do that. We actually had, it's interesting how this works though in churches, we had some friends who went into a foreign country on on a mission trip and they were teaching into this concept of grace and the gospel of grace, Paul called it. And this Jesus plus nothing was kind of the phrase that they were using because the churches they were preaching into had a lot of other things that they had tried to add to the gospel. And so the translator was the best translator they had, and so they go through it, and he would say Jesus plus nothing, and the guy would get super excited. And at the end of it, they were having the conversation, and, and they asked him, like, how did you actually translate 
Jesus plus nothing. And he said, well, um, the phrase that we used was Jesus more or less. <laughs> it's like, we need to go back in there and teach this whole thing again, because that's not what I was trying to say. So it's not Jesus more or less, it's Jesus completely, 100%. So I, I love theology. Theology is just a simple study of God. Everybody is involved in theology, whether they understand it or not. But there are lots of doctrines. Just, uh, there are all kinds of interesting doctrines. There are fascinating doctrines. There are important doctrines. But there are very, very few foundational doctrines. But those foundational doctrines have to be preached first. And we're going to get into this in just a second. And they have to be preached in sequence. Because if you get them out of sequence, you, me- you mess the whole problem up or you create a whole problem. And the other doctrines, all these other things about um, you know, how to live in this present world, how to be a part of the church, community, all these different things, they find their fullest expression, lasting impact when they're anchored to these foundational doctrines. If you don't get the foundational doctrines right, then the, the belief system, the philosophy of belief, the worldview that you create is often disconnected from the foundational doctrines. So we want to be careful of that. In John 19, what we're launching with this, this phrase, it is finished, John 19, 28 through 30, there's more about this, but I'm just going to read the last couple of verses. Um, this is Jesus on the cross. It says, later, knowing that everything now had been finished... It's a fascinating phrase. He said, knowing, Jesus knowing, that everything had now been finished. He said, so the scripture would be fulfilled. Jesus said, I'm thirsty. So this is interesting because it's a passage in Psalm 69, 21, where it says, they put gall in my food and they gave me vinegar for my thirst. This is a a prophetic picture of Jesus on the cross, of the Messiah on the cross, uh, Messiah being sacrificed. And Jesus quotes that because he wants to fulfill prophecy. And then he goes on, he says, It says, a jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. And again, the the Bible doesn't hold anything back. When it says something, you're like, why the arbitrary phrase about the hyssop plant? Like, what difference does that make? And it's a really good question, because in Exodus 12, 22, this is what it says. When it was talking about the angel of the Lord was going to come, the death angel was going to come and destroy all of the firstborn, the Passover lamb was offered, and it was the blood was taken, and it was painted on the, on the door, on the top of the door and on the sides of the door. And this is what it says in Exodus 12, 22. Take a bunch of hyssop. Isn't that interesting? Like Jesus is the same concept that they use. They use the hyssop branch to paint the blood on, on the, door, the doorpost. It says, um, take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood in the basin, and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the doorframe. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. And so this whole concept was with the blood of the lamb being posted on the doorstep, the angel of death would pass over that house. That's where that word Passover comes from. So here's Jesus fulfilling the simplest little prophecy about I'm thirsty and they give him vinegar to drink, which anybody who's paying attention, which a lot of people weren't, but anybody who's paying attention, they're like, that's exactly what it said in Psalm, 96, or Psalm 69. And then the taking the hyssop, the fact it was that branch, it was a prophetic declaration of Jesus, right? Then this is what happened, uh, going back to John 19, uh, 28 and 30, through 30. It says, uh, the hyssop plant lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Now here's what's really, really interesting about the word, it is finished. In the original language in Greek, it's one word, Right? And he exclaimed this one word, it is finished. And this is what that literally means. Not just it's finished, because sometimes we lose it in the English translation. 
That one word meant it is finished and always will be finished. (laughs) It's always going to be finished. Really, really important. Jesus became a curse for us so the blessing of God could be poured on us. But so many of us don't know what was accomplished, what was finished on the cross, because we think we still need to add something to what Jesus did on the cross. Now, it's silly when I say it like that, isn't it? But it's often what we end up doing. So there's this beautiful analogy that Paul brings out when he's going in, he's teaching into the churches. Um, The the author of Hebrews says it. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians and a couple of places. Peter talks about it. And it's this concept of milk, right? So he uses this analogy of a baby, this, this infant, that you can't, one, it doesn't even have the ability, doesn't have any teeth to actually chew meat, right? And if it did, if you took meat and put it in its digestive system, it would do, him, it would do that baby harm and not good. So he said, what you, you can't do that. You can't feed meat to a baby. You have to feed the baby milk. And the milk, when you feed that baby milk, it allows that baby to grow up until at some point it can actually eat meat, right? It's not that it never drinks milk again, like we're one of the only, only Google this, we're one of the only species on the earth that still drinks milk <laughs> after we're not babies anymore, right? I think that's part of this, actually. It's part of this connection to what the Bible says about that. But let me just read you in Hebrews. Here's a concept. This Paul's passion throughout Scripture, and you see it in the, Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews as well. He says, we have much to say about this. This is Hebrews 5, 11 through 13. We have much to say about this, but it's hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In other words, they got into a place where they're coming off milk, right, and starting to eat solid food, and they had regressed and gone backwards, right? He goes on, he says, in fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, right? In other words, by this time you ought to be feeding milk to other babies. He says, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, right? Not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, now listen, anyone who lives on milk being still an infant is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness, so here's this interesting thing. He's saying that then once you've had milk and you've had these basic foundational elementary doctrines, then you can begin to understand this acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. In other words, there's something that comes after the cross. If, that, if you don't get the foundational understanding of the cross, you're never going to completely understand what grace has made available to you. And so he's going to get into that in several different ways. First Corinthians, Paul, again, writing to this church, And he says, brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly. And he goes on, he says, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. So he's saying to them, you guys should be living as spiritual beings, right? You have, have, there's been this transformation in you. You have a new heart. You're literally, according to the Bible, you're literally a new species of human being because you're no longer stuck in a fleshly mode. You've actually moved up. You've graduated to a spiritual arena. So it's basically saying, he's saying to them, you are living as if there's nothing but the flesh available to you. And here's the challenge to Christians. We see this all the time. I fall into this trap. You probably have as well. We, We get so enamored with the world that we stop thinking about heavenly things and we start thinking about earthly things. It's kind of like Peter, when, when Peter asked Jesus, he said, Lord, if this is you, bid me come out onto the water. And so Jesus said, come out here. <laughs> I'm doing it. You can do it, right? Go figure. So Peter goes out, and he's, as long as his eyes are focused on Jesus, he 
violates the natural realm by standing on water, right? You ever try this? It's really, really difficult. <laughs> the, the odd defying God, right? Karen was talking about that during, during our, our praise and worship. So here's Peter. The moment he takes his eyes off of Jesus, though, what happens? He goes back into the only thing that affects him. He, he, he submits himself again to the natural world. See, as long as his eyes were on Jesus, as long as he was connected spiritually to Jesus, he was operating in a different world. The second he takes his eyes off of Jesus, he only begins to operate back in the natural world again. And it's so often that's what we do. We get saved, we, get, we see Jesus, we see, we have a glimpse into his glory and who he is and what he's done on the cross, and then very, very quickly we begin to say, you know what, Jesus is awesome, but you know what would be really helpful? If I read my Bible more, right? Because that's really what's going to do it for me. Nothing wrong hear me. <laughs> Nothing wrong with reading your Bible. I read my Bible all the time. I love it. And I'm constantly, I've been doing it for 30-something years, and I discover something new all the time about God's nature, his kindness, his goodness, something to do with his character. They were living on a human level of life they hadn't translated to another one. They'd never gotten beyond the affairs and the material things of this life, and they acted as though this world was all there was. So you see this often when people are like, they're struggling with something in this world, you know, Karen brings this word, this prophetic word about an odd-defying God, an odds-defying God, right? She talked about, if you were in prayer time, she talked about how in, in, in the house, right? She mentioned this before. In the house, the odds are always in the house's favor. Otherwise, the house can't exist, right? So if you think of that in terms of God and the odds are always in God's favor, then if God be for you, who can be against you, right? But flip that around, and if God's against you, who can be for you? And so it's not, it's not that God is ever against you as a believer. You're his son, you're his daughter. He's for you. But because you've taken your eyes away from the supernatural realm of who he is and how he works and put it into a natural realm, it's as if God isn't for you because you can't receive from him. So we get ourselves in trouble with this. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 and 2, it's just a little bit before this passage that I just read. This is what he says to the Corinthian church. He says, and so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence of human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with, I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So he said, listen, when I came to tell you about God, even though he had all this human wisdom, he was a brilliant man, that's not what he did. He limited what he was going to tell them to two things. Jesus Christ, who he was, his nature, his, the person of Jesus Christ, his nature, his character, his ways, all those things. And secondly, our inheritance from his death on the cross. So he said, Jesus and him crucified. In translation, Jesus and who he is. And then your identity because of what he said about you. Your inheritance is connected to this. That's why I came up and shared about that song, He's a Good, Good Father, right? And then it says, I am loved by him. It's like, here's God's identity. He's good, right? So when bad things are happening to you, if we're not careful, what we do is we ascribe to God something the enemy does. And then we expect somehow to be blessed. Why would we do that? And here's the, here's the only answer. I really don't know how good he is. I've read it. I've heard it. Karen said it a million times. I've said it a million times. Woodham said it. Everybody who's preached, we say it all the time. Not because it's, it's, it's good PR, right? Although it is, right? But it's, it's because that's who he is in his nature and his character. And when you are experiencing circumstances that are telling you something different, that you have to understand, I know who he is, 
right? We had a situation with a, a former pastor who was here on staff with me. He's planting a church in Greenville right now, Andrew Sharp. And so somebody came to me and they said, listen, I'm having some, some challenges with Andrew. And I said, well, it's probably because you're not stepping up because Andrew will kick you in the pants, right? So I didn't say that out loud. I said it in my head. But uh, given the benefit of the doubt, I said, so what's going on? So he tells me something about Andrew that is not at all like Andrew. And so I said, listen, I've seen Andrew in some really tough, tough situations. I know him. I've known him for the past six, seven years. The guy you're talking about is not him. So maybe he had a bad day. I don't know. Maybe you poked him where you shouldn't have poked him. I don't know. But I know that's not true. And maybe some of this stuff is your issues, not his issues. But here's what you, can, what you need to do. You need to go to him, because this is what the Bible says do. Go to him and talk to him and find out. Just say, hey, listen, this happened. This is what I felt like was going on. Is that true? And I promise you, he'll sort it out. And he did. And Andrew said, man, I, I don't know where you got that. That's not at all what I meant. Um, that, I would never do that. So he misunderstood his, Andrew's identity, and because of that, he was living in fear of a conversation with Andrew. But isn't that exactly what we do with God? If I believe God is giving me sickness, then I'll just take the sickness, right? So whoever knocks on the door, if the, you know, the UPS guy knocks on the door and he says, hey, I get this bundle of sickness and brokenness and every good thing, you know, bad thing for you, um, here, sign for this, and you just take it because it's been offered to you, you're signing for something that is, it's not yours to sign for. It's not yours, but you take it into your possession because you misunderstood who's trying to send you what. And so the Bible talks about in John 10, it says that Jesus came to bring us life and more abundant, but what, the, what did the devil do? Came to steal, kill, and destroy. So when you see the circumstances of your life telling you that God is trying to steal, kill, or destroy you, you have to make a decision that these guys had to make. They had to go back and go, but is that actually his nature? Because if it's not, I am not signing for this bag of goods. And the moment you make that decision, the devil has no place in you, right? So let's get into this a little bit more. So um, again, he said, Jesus and him crucified, those are the only two things that he's, he talked about. And then during this series, that's what I'm going to go after. The identity, the person and identity of Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross. So let's start with this. What are the actual, I'm, I'm going to throw a little bit of inception at you. So what are the benefits of studying the benefits of the cross? <laughs> right, so let me say it again. What are the benefits of studying the benefits of the cross. There's just three things I want to give you. So as, as we go into this series to prepare you for what's ahead, and hopefully today you can get something out of this. Number one, it grows our love and our appreciation for Jesus. When we study the cross and see what was done, what he did on our behalf, we fall in love with Jesus. We appreciate him. We understand. We get to know the kind of love that he actually has for him, and we just fall in love with him all over again. The cross displays God's amazing grace. It proves his love in a graphic and tangible way. So that's part of what the cross is like. I, had, I used to have this t-shirt that said, if, if, um, if you're okay and I'm okay, then explain this. And it was a graphic depiction of what had happened with Jesus on the cross. He was almost unrecognizable. Blood everywhere. His flesh was torn. And you look at that and go, who would do that for me? And the answer is God would. His love for you. So, number one, it grows our love and appreciation for Jesus in studying the cross. Number two, it emboldens our faith. Our faith, And this is what's powerful. It helps us to trust him and believe him for what he has accomplished on our behalf. Let me put it this way. Rules and regulations do not require a relationship. So, if, if it, your faith is emboldened, when you come alive in your faith, 
then you recognize rules and regulations. If you, have, if you don't have a relationship with God, your faith is going to stay low because you don't believe in who he says he is. You won't believe that he's actually good. And number three, it shields us from error and legalism. And this is a big one. Paul constantly talked about and emphasized faith in Christ alone, nothing else. Jesus plus nothing. So in Galatians 3, this is what he said. He said, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? He's talking to a people that he'd come in and he talked to them about Jesus and him crucified. He'd done the same thing in building the foundation. Who has bewitched you? Listen to what he says. Before your very eyes, Jesus was clearly portrayed as crucified. See, what he's saying is, when I came and talked to you about Jesus and, and you understanding grace and understanding the effects that Jesus had, the effect of the cross on your behalf, he said, I clearly taught you and explained to you the crucifixion. He goes on, he says, I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law, right, or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish after beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? And so he's going back to, he said, you took your eyes off the natural world, you put it on a supernatural event that occurred at the cross. You became a new creation, all because of grace, Nothing to do with your behavior, good or bad. It was all something Jesus did on your behalf. And now you've taken your eyes off that spiritual realm and you've put them on the natural realm. He's asking the question. He's like, how did you end up hearing a gospel that's no gospel at all? So religion exploits this idea. Man-made rules. I have to do something to earn it. I have to add something. But here's why that we do that. It allows us to boast in something we accomplished. So you cannot come to the cross without humility. It will break you down. <laughs> it, will, it will tear every bit of, I can do this, I can boast in myself. Any arrogance that belongs, or any arrogance that's in you at all will be broken down by the cross. Because the cross is all or nothing, right? It's receiving Jesus for who he said he was and what he accomplished. It's all or nothing. So without understanding the cross, this is what happen, happens to us. We give in to other, what the Bible calls another gospel or other gospels. Galatians, again, verses 6 and 7, Paul saying to this church, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ. He says, I'm astonished that you have abandoned the, the supernatural for the natural, right? He says, um, called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Verse 7 says, which is really no gospel at all. So in other words, it's really not good news. The good news is Jesus paid 100% to, to have you, to, to be in your life, to give you the, the inheritances on the cross. He paid it all. And he says, if you believe that you have added your effort to that, that is not good news and it's not going to work out well for you. He goes on, he says, evidently some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. Now, let me just say this. This is what we do. We give our lives to Christ. We begin to live, and if we're not care, careful, if we don't really understand the cross, if we really never understood the person and work of Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross, we are prone to error and religion. We're prone to it. We set ourselves up for it, so guess what the enemy sends to our door? He says, you know what? You're really just not... You're not reading your Bible enough. You're not praying enough. You know what you really need to do? You need to serve. Like, we're going to serve on Thanksgiving Day, and if you serve, then, you know, God will love you. <laughs> right? But that's not what the Bible teaches, not even a little bit. 
So there's this sub- southern novelist, a guy named Farrell Sams. Some of you guys might have read his stuff. Um, he grew up in Georgia. He went to Mercer University, and he went on and got his, his, uh, uh, his MD um, from uh, Emory. And so he's a brilliant guy, and he started writing books when he retired from being a medical doctor. A lot of it was about him growing up in the South. But he explains um, this deeply ingrained tradition in the South of being raised right. Anybody ever... My mom said, I didn't, ra- I didn't raise you like that, right? <laughs> when you did something wrong. So he talks about this, and this is how he explained it. He said, the child who is raised right pleases his parents and other adults by adhering to moral conventions and social etiquette. That sounds like every country music song you've ever, you've ever heard, right, only at a doctorate level. <laughs> he goes on, he says, the young person who is raised right emerges as an adult who obeys the laws, respects his neighbors, gives at least lip service to religious expectations, and stays away from scandal. And if you can do that, you can, you, can, you can be raised right. So the point is clear. This is what parents expect. This is what the culture affirms. And many churches celebrate this. Right? So listen, I'm going to just tell you right now. When people, we have people who come to DCF from time to time who are really broken. <laughs> and they don't know how to act like a Christian. And so they don't act like Christians because, you know, they're not a Christian and stuff, <laughs> right? And so they, they're awkward to be around. They pray prayers that are super awkward, like, where, what Bible did you get that out of? And it's like uh, the one on Facebook, like, obviously. So we, we, we invite those people in. Because as a matter of fact, there's a word of our church that said when the prodigals come in, when they step over the door, the doorstep, it's like they're coming into another country. And it, it goes back to the same thing as we teach into this, that people realize the rules for social etiquette, the rules, moralism really is, is what, what it's called in the South, that your behavior is what really matters, right? But that's not what God's after. And it turns out that God is actually, I have to be careful how I say this, God is actually okay with you misbehaving until you stop misbehaving. It's literally what grace is for. Literally. So if, if you're not careful, what, what this will do, being raised right and leaning into religion and moralism, what it will do, it will make you proud of yourself because you're obeying the rules well, and you'll look down on all the broken people who don't know Jesus out there, right? So what happens, rather than a brother who needs help, like the, you know, the older brother in the story of the prodigal son, the older brother despised his brother. He wouldn't even call him his brother. He said, he said to the father, your son, not even my brother, your son. Right, And so there's this picture, if we're not careful, of religion. If we don't understand what happened on the cross for ourselves, we become prideful and arrogant because we're raised right. We're not living and believing in the cross. We're just good at being moral, right? Because the culture has pressed it on us. The church has pressed it on us. My mama pressed it on us. And if I, didn't, if I wasn't raised right, I got a spanking, right? So I, I, I adjusted, but there was no change on the inside of me. And that's the danger that we fall into in the religion. So wiregrass, this area, the wiregrass is filled with people who've been raised right, but are not walking in their true inheritance. In other words, they're moral. And that, listen, if you're just moral, things are going to work good for you in a lot of ways. But it's going to undermine the work of God in you. And that's where it's dangerous. So here's why that happens. Because we fall into this process of, you saw this um, in Alabama years ago. There's a big thing about the Ten Commandments being staying up. And I'm, I have no problem with the Ten Commandments being in the courtroom or any other place. But there's, there's a problem with the Ten Commandments that nobody wants to talk about. And it's this. The Ten Commandments are just a picture. It's a short picture 
of the greater law, 630-something laws that you had to obey to the letter. If you disobeyed one letter, James, or one part of the law, James said, you are guilty of it all, right? So the problems, there's several problems with the law, um, because in, in the uh, day of the Hebrews, when Moses comes down off the mountain, and he's proclaiming the law, he's going to read it to them. The Bible says that they all gather on the mountainside. He, he was on the other mountainside. He proclaims the law. He says all of it, the whole 630 different rules. He says it all, and they all in one voice proclaimed, we will do everything that is written, every single thing. The arrogance that in my own strength I'm going to do good is the same thing that we see in social you know, the social etiquette, this moralism, this being raised right, this if you, you know, if you go to church, then you, you obviously are Christian. Listen, I go to McDonald's and I'm not a hamburger, right? So just proximity doesn't equal, <laughs> you understand, right? But we take, if we're not careful, we believe that and we get caught up in all these rules and regulations. So under the law, I cannot make up the ground that I lost by sinning one time. See, what happened with the law was if you, this is what the law says, if you obey the law, all of these blessings will come upon you. This is what Moses said to the people of Israel. And he said, but if you disobey in one point, if you, if you miss it in one spot, all of the curses will come upon you. Right? That was the law. So what was the law for? We know this. If you've been hanging around here, we know the law was a schoolmaster. We see this in Romans 8. It says, for what the law could not do. So moralism, rules and regulations, all these things, what it cannot do, this is what the Bible says, weak as it was through the flesh. See that word coming up again. God did. So in other words, the law, the law was not designed to fix you. It was designed to show you that you needed fixing. Right? That's the southern version. Right? So what does that look like? It looks like if I keep trying to fix me, if I keep adding something, you know, if I just do better, if I just turn over a new leaf, if I just do better, then God will approve of me. No, God has already approved you, not because you've done anything good or bad, but because Jesus died on your behalf and he exchanged his righteousness for your brokenness. That's why God approves of you. No other reason. None. The economy of the kingdom is only blood, and it's only the blood from a perfect lamb, right? We know this. And so Romans 8, 24, he says, what the law couldn't do, weak as it was through the flesh. In other words, the problem with the law wasn't the law. So the law's not bad. The problem was you couldn't do it, and that was the point. He goes on, he says, sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. In other words, the law requires perfection, but you couldn't give it in your flesh. But in your submission to what Jesus did for you on the cross, the exchange occurred, and now it, when God looks at you, he sees you as perfect. And see, that is really hard for us to understand when we're not living perfectly, when our behavior is not in line with the gospel, then we get confused. And this is why it's so important to understand this. He goes on, he says, uh, the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. See how that came back up again. In other words, if you, if you bring it all down to a natural level of rules and regulations and doing better, you've taken your eyes off the only way you can actually be transformed. And so you just go, you fall right back into the rhythm of trying to live a natural life, which means you can't live up to it, which means the second part of that is you live in guilt, shame, and condemnation all the time. 
It never goes away. So, number two, sac- uh, the sacrifices in the law were temporary in their efficacy or efficiency, right? The law could never re- remove your sin. Now, I'm going to take a minute, and I want to I read some stuff in Hebrews because this is really, really important because as we get into this series, we're going to contrast the law and what, what religion and what moralism and what our natural culture, especially in the South, tries to do. And this passage in Hebrews, if you go back to it and read it, it will remind you. So it starts in Hebrews 10. It says, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities of themselves. Right? There's a shadow, not the reality, not the substance. For th- this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make you perfect. Uh, or make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered for the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all? He's saying, if the law was going to save you, at some point there would have been enough sacrifices to get the job done. But it, it didn't happen that way. Every time someone had to bring their offering because they had sinned, they had, they had forsaken the law, they had broken the law, and they bring their sacrifices, and one more sacrifice has to be offered over and over and over again. Verse 8, he says, first he said, and this is God speaking, um, from an Old Testament passage. He says, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you do not desire. Now, this is important because if you go back to the law, you, and he goes on, he says it this way, he said, nor were you pleased with them though they were offered in accordance with the law. It's like, come on, God, you know, we're bringing the sacrifices and you're the one who set this whole program up. But God's saying at some point, I'm sick of the sacrifices not because the sacrifices aren't pushing your sin back one more year and taking the judgment off for one year. That's part of what the sacrificial system was designed to do. But it was a shadow of something that was coming that was going to be permanent and not temporary, right? And so what happens is we bring our sacrifices over and over. Why? He said, because you keep sinning, <laughs> right? So if you're ever wondering, is, is grace about just it's okay that you sin? The answer is absolutely not. In Hebrews, he talks about this. The problem isn't the law The problem isn't even the sacrifice. The problem is, in your flesh, you think that it's okay to keep bringing sacrifices over and over and over again, so that's what you do. So you sin, and you live a fleshly life. You live in sin, and you think, if if I'm just sorry all the time, then that me being sorry all the time is another sacrifice I can bring. And the Bible says that's just a shadow when Jesus has made one sacrifice for all. So what happens is when you get a new heart, you get a new, you're a new species, you become brand new. All the old stuff passed away, everything is new, right? You begin to serve God from a place of thankfulness and wonder and love. And you're like, God, you're so amazing. I, I, I can't believe that you would do this for me. And then your heart is, I don't want to sin any longer. But if you live in these old rules and regulations, you're going to want to keep sinning. Verse 9, it says, then he said, here I am, talking about Jesus, I have come to do your will. In other words, I've come to fix this whole problem. He sets aside the first to establish the second. In other words, the first, the first testament, Old Testament, he's setting it aside because the New Testament is going to fix it once for all. And he goes on, he says, he sets aside the first to establish the second, and by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. See, when Jesus sacrificed himself, He goes into the heavenly, the Bible says he goes into the heavenly temple. He sprinkles his own blood on the altar in the heavenly temple, right? Whatever the earthly temple was supposed to represent. And it was perfect. 
and it was accepted. In two ways we know it was accepted, because Jesus sat down. In the old priesthood, you could never sit down, never sit down, right? But he sat down because what he had done was finished. And then the Bible says he was raised from the dead, and this was signifying in him being raised from the dead. We celebrate this at Easter was the truth that Jesus' sacrifice, once for all, had been accepted on your behalf. Now, we're going to get into why that matters. Verse 11 says this, Every priest stands daily, ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. But he, Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. And verse 14 says, For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever, those who are being made holy. Now, this is where the dilemma comes in, right? Because we, we, we give our lives to Christ. We believe in what Jesus did on the cross on our behalf. And we're like, oh, that's awesome. Jesus saved me. Now, I'm never going to sin again, <laughs> right? And then reality strikes because you try to drive in Atlanta, and they're all sinners up there, so you have to just join in and get mad, right? And say something you ought not say. What happens is you realize that I have patterns in my old man. Not that my old man is still alive. Not that, you know, I'm still, this is the famous phrase, I'm a sinner saved by grace. No, no, you, you have to choose one. You can be a sinner or you can be saved by grace. But the confusion comes in is, if I'm saved by grace, why do I keep sinning? And that is the question. Why do you keep sinning? And the Bible is telling us over and over and over again, it's because you keep taking your eyes off of Jesus, the author and the finisher, the perfecter of our faith. And you put your eyes on you and your sin consciousness and the patterns that are left over from what it looked like when you lived before you knew Jesus. So I've, I've said this a million times. My behavior, if I sin as a Christian, what happens? Does, does God say, Oh, myself, I can't, I can't handle him anymore. He has messed up one too many times. Well, how many times is one too many? Find it in Scripture. This is always how you find out whether you're living under, under grace or not. It's like, you know, if you do this one more time, I don't know what Jesus is going to do. Jesus has already done everything he's going to do, so I can tell you what he's going to do. He's going to love you anyway. Right? Well, what if I keep sinning? You're going to keep finding out the benefits of sin right? And none of the benefits of the Father. You're going to walk in a fleshly and a natural way. You're going to give people the wrong idea about what it means to be a Christian. You're going, you know, the Bible says sin brings death, so relationships are going to die. Economy is going to die. Your, your mental health is going to die. Every terrible thing as a Christian, if you keep sinning, all kinds of bad things are going to happen to you in this world. But it's not going to take away God's love for you. He's never going to stop loving you. He's never going to abandon you. He's never going to walk away from you. He said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will come to you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And he's saying that because we think our behavior will keep him from loving us. And so you know what we do? We sin and we buy into the devil's lie that says, if I sin, God no longer loves me or he's angry with me, so he turns his back on me. And what that really, what's really happened is I'm effectively turning my back on him and no longer receiving his love. It doesn't change my eternity whatsoever. It doesn't change his picture of me that he loves me because he paid for my sin before the foundation of time. The Bible says that the lamb was slain before the foundation of time, long before you ever sinned. Long before you ever sinned or broke anything or did anything wrong, the price was already paid for you. That that was the plan, the perfect 
plan of God. Now, what are you going to add to that? And the answer is nothing, right? So Galatians 3.19 goes after this. I'm going to wrap this up. Why then was the law given at all? That's a really good question because we keep falling back into, I need to do the right thing. I was raised right. I need to do right, right? We keep talking about right. And Jesus doesn't put it in that context. He says in the prodigal son, he said, he said my son was dead, now he's alive. He never said he was wrong, now he's right. Right? Because in the, in the book of Genesis, the, the, remember the tree that was eaten of was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We are the ones that make it about behavior. God did not. God said your behavior is, is, is basically explained by who your focus is upon. So we're going to get into that in the series. He goes on. The law was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. In other words, Jesus, right? The law was there temporary. He goes on. He says, absolutely not. For if the law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, that we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian or schoolmaster or tutor until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. And that's part of what this, is, this series is about. It's not about how well you do because you're not go- some people are going to do better than others. I use this illustration a lot. You, you and I stand on, on the edge of the Grand Canyon. You throw a rock, I throw a rock. Maybe you throw it farther than me, but you're not getting to the other side, right? But I'll glory in the fact that I can throw my rock farther than you. Well, maybe you were born bigger than me. I don't know. <laughs> maybe your gifts allow you to throw the rock farther than me. Maybe you're good at following rules, but that will be your undoing if you don't trust in God for your salvation and for your wholeness. So let me close with this. I'm just going to give you four things that I want you to get as we, from today and as we get into the series. The first one is this. Jesus alone could achieve what was accomplished on the cross. Nobody, nobody else was chosen from the foundation of time. He was. Only one person was chosen to be the high priest forever. He ended the line of priests and became the last priest because what he did, his sacrifice and his offering was once for all and it was enough. He was born out of Adam's sinful line. Nobody else did that. And he lived a perfect, sinless life. Nobody did that. Jesus alone could achieve what was accomplished on the cross. Secondly, his achievements on our behalf did not rely on any effort from us. If that were true to save you, right, and to bring you in to his kingdom, how will he keep you? By his efforts or by yours? So we're going to talk about what it means to co-labor, right, and to be co-heirs with Christ. Because there's a part you play. The part you play is belief. We're going to get to that. Number three, God required no additional sacrifices to be added to what his son did. So often, this is what we do. We have the conversation with God because we try to live a good life and we screw it up. And then we come to Jesus. We come to the Father with our sacrifice. I am so sorry. I've done, I've played this game and lost Lord, I, I, I won't do it again. Yes, you will. No, I won't, no, not this time. I will not do it again. Children of Israel, we will do everything that's written in the law. No, you won't. That's the point of the law. So at some point, 
Can you catch the point of the law? Can you catch the fact that you cannot do it? Once you come to that understanding, it takes all of self-effort away. It removes all of the arrogance, the foolishness that, you, that makes you think that you can add one single thing to what Jesus did on the cross. You can't. And lastly, number four, the only way to access what Jesus accomplished on the cross is through faith. You believing in what Jesus did for you on the cross equals access to your inheritance. And so as we go forward in this, in this sermon series, we're going to talk about what Jesus accomplished on the cross and what that means for you. And everything I'm going to talk about, some of it you probably already know. Maybe I'll surprise you with some stuff. If you've been around for a long time, you probably heard the words. But do you know what they mean, and do you know how to access it through faith? At some point, you have to say, God, you have your way of doing it, and I've had my way, and I need to let my way go, and I need to grab hold of the way you do everything, your ways. He said of Moses, he loved Moses because he understood his ways, right? So we're going to talk about what the cross looks like and what he did on the cross, who Jesus was and what he accomplished on the cross, and what we're going to discover is that the cross was a love story, and you were at its center. Every bit of what Jesus did for you, every single bit, is not because you did anything, anything for him, but because he loves you. And if you could ever get, I'm talking to myself, if you could ever get that through your thick skull, that he loves you. Yeah, but Dave, you don't understand what it, he loves you. Yeah, but if he knew, he knew, he knew before he ever made you, you were going to do it, and he still loves you. He loves you. This is what we were singing about. He's a good, good father, and I am loved by him. That is my identity. And if you will fall on your face, fully humbled, letting go of all your arrogance into that truth, Jesus, you love me, then what happens is you begin to respond to that love, and your response to that love, believing what he has done for you, you begin to see your life transformed into what you know it's supposed to be. You begin to walk in the inheritance. You eat the, or you drink the milk in the beginning and you understand this. And then once you understand this, it's like, oh, everything that is going to happen is going to happen because of his great love for me. And then I just submit my heart to that. And I say, God, I love you. And then when I screw up and I have this pattern of sin in my life, I say, Jesus, I don't know why I'm doing this. This is not who you made, to be, made me to be. You've called me into, in, away from sin into life. This doesn't look like life. And you can come boldly before the throne of grace for help in time of need, what Hebrews says. Why? Because it's not based on whether you've done well. You can sin a big juicy sin, whatever that is for you, and instantly come before the Lord and go, that is not me. That is, I know I did it. And that was behavior, but that, that is not my heart. I don't want that. Now, Lord, will you teach me? Will you help me? Will you help me understand how to come out of that old mindset and that old way of thinking into life, right? And as you do that, what happens is you begin to mature as sons and daughters, and the inheritance of God begins to fall on you, and then you become the older brother that Jesus was, not the one in the prodigal story, that Jesus had all this inheritance, Right? And we were the, the, the younger son, lost and undone, spending our father's, what we thought was our father's inheritance, only on our own self and our own riotous living. And you come back and all you're thinking, I'll come and be a servant 
to God. And God says that is not how family works. You come back, you come back as a son, fully vested. All the, I'll put the ring back on your finger. I'll put the robe on your back. I'm going to put shoes on your feet. Everything that is mine has always been yours, right? You become the prodigal, not the prodigal brother, the older brother, but you come like Jesus. You take all of your inheritance and you begin to pour it out for those people who are broken and hurting and who are less mature than you. And you very quickly become a father and mother in the kingdom. And we see this whole area, this whole region, evangelize, disciple, and see the kingdom of God begin to flow into our city, not through moralism, because it can never do that. It can never come here through moralism, but through the power and the resurrection of Jesus on the, on the cross, after the cross. Amen? So why don't you stand with me? I want to pray for you. Thank you. It's a lot, and I know it's kind of deep. It's really challenging. Um, if you will, go back and read some of these passages. Begin to think about Go back and study what Jesus did on the cross. Google it. There's a ton of stuff out there. Not all of it's good, but a bunch of it is. Um, but begin to think on this. Begin to dwell on this. And as we uncover some of these things, I want you to be challenged and go, you know what? I'm, I'm, I don't understand that concept. I don't understand what it means to be regenerated. I don't un- understand uh, what, what justification actually is. I thought I did. But as we uncover these and make them plain from what happened in the cross, God is going to grow you up. He's going to mature you. And I'm telling you, there's going to be breakthrough in your life. And there's, because there's breakthrough in your life, there's going to be breakthrough in your sphere of influence as well. Amen? So Jesus, we love you. We say thank you for your kindness and your goodness. Lord, our heart is open to you. Teach us, Lord. Uh, help us understand that it's, not, it's, it's never been about us and how we are saved and how we're brought into the family. But, Lord, it's always been about us and your great love and your kindness towards us. Lord, that we are the object of your desire. We are the object of your affection. And, Lord, we are the object of you maturing us and growing us up into fruitful sons and daughters in the kingdom. And so, Lord, we submit ourselves to you. We humble ourselves and we come to the cross and say thank you for what you did. Lord, help us to understand it and to walk in it fully and walk in our inheritance. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you need prayer this morning and you're here in the room, uh, we'll have leaders up the front. Be happy to pray for you. If you're online, go to our website and click on the link for prayer. We'd love to pray for you. Have a wonderful week. We love you guys.